How's everybody doing? Doing good? Waking up? Waking up? Who's tired? This time change. I, I don't know what's going on with that. That is absurd. I thought it was supposed to like be, we were getting an hour, but it's six o'clock. I feel like it's 10 at night. It is like pitch black. You send the kids out. They're scared to take the trash out now after dinner. It is like, it is crazy out there. Um, well, it's, it's so cool to see how God kind of knits everything together because um, Vicki has so many things uh, in her talk that overlap with a lot of the stuff that I'm talking about today. Um, but if you think about it in our culture, I'm going to back up a little bit because I don't know if that will help or not. But if you think about it in our culture, the whole job of advertisers is to make us discontent. Have you ever thought about that? Because what they're trying to do is get you to realize that you need something. They're trying to sell you something. And the way they sell it to you is, well, obviously you need it. Your life won't be complete without whatever this is, right? So um, we live kind of in a culture of, you know, like people tease me a little bit, but I have a very tiny closet, and I have very few clothes, and I have very few pairs of shoes, like literally very few pairs of shoes, probably like four or five pairs. That's about it. Um, and people joke with me and stuff, and somebody had said one time, well, I have like 200 pairs of shoes. Well, that's great, I guess, all right. But, you know, culturally, that's like normal. That's kind of a normal thing. Um, so we live in this always more to want. And then you throw in something like Pinterest, and it's like insane, isn't it? You're like, well, I liked my house till I looked on Pinterest. My house is terrible. What a dump. I can't believe we live here. Oh, my gosh. This, this place needs to be condemned. And uh, so, yeah, I mean, that's kind of, you know, culturally how we live. There's always something better, and then you do a party, and after you do the party, you're like, oh. I could have made three-dimensional singing party favors. <laughs> My party is a failure. Yeah, you know, and like, the, I'm just going to tell you this between you and me because I can make all that stuff and I'm very creative and I like doing it all. But if you look around at those parties that are so perfect, have you ever seen the hostess? Like her eyes, you know. Just, <laughs> have you seen it? It's true. It's true. It's true. And you know who you are out there. Your children are like, it's okay, I don't want a birthday party this year, Mommy. It's okay, not this time, Mommy. It's true. It's true. So if you open up to the marriage moments section of your booklet, um, you'll see the first bullet point. It says, gratitude is an issue of the heart. Gratitude is an issue of the heart. We must learn to be grateful all the time, regardless of our circumstances. We must learn to be grateful all, all the time, regardless of our circumstances. And, you know, um, it's very easy for us to be dependent on what's happening in our lives in order to have the type of attitude we should have. Um, and as you know, um, as moms, it is completely possible to have someone say that they're grateful or say thank you, and they don't mean it at all, right? 
you know, your kid just got something from his grandma and it was like a sweater with like a groundhog on it or something. And um, she knitted it and it's like the itchiest sweater in the world, but you know, it took her seven weeks and you're trying to, you know, it's going to be a family heirloom someday. Just what's an heirloom? I don't even know. And you're trying to get the kid to be thankful and the kid's like, thank you. When they run off, right? Right? You've done, you've seen it, right? Okay. So what I'm going to do to explain, um, how frustrating it must be, uh, you will relate to this as wives and as parents, but I'm going to talk to you very briefly, um, about, uh, a timeline of the Israelites and you can take little, you can jot little things down that pop out at you, but this is kind of a brief history of the book of Exodus, which is, um, the second book in the Bible. So, The book of Exodus opens up. The Israelites are slaves in Egypt. They've been there forever. God takes Moses. He raises them up, and he says, let my people go. And then God sends these horrific and amazing plagues um, to get Pharaoh to let the people go. Nine of them. And then all of a sudden, it's the big one. He's like, he's been warning Pharaoh. It's going to get worse. Going to get worse. It's coming. It's coming. Pharaoh won't listen. Passover. Passover, the firstborn of the Egyptians, they're all, they all die in one night. The, um, at that point, finally, Pharaoh gives in. He says, all right, hit the road, get out of here. Interestingly enough, in Exodus 12, 36, because this is how God works, he says to them before they leave, he says, in Exodus 12, 36, the Lord had made the Egyptians favorably disposed toward the people. And they gave them what they asked for. And so they plundered the Egyptians. So literally, as the Egypt, or as the Israelites are fleeing Egypt, the Egyptians are handing them wealth, material possessions, jewelry. They're just handing it to them. Back in Exodus 3, God had promised when he was calling Moses, he promised them, this is what I'm going to do when I deliver you out of Egypt. I'm going to make them favorably disposed toward you, and this is how it's going to work. Lo and behold, nine nine chapters later, that's what God does. They're heading out. It's going great. Everybody's excited, feeling good. They turn around. Oh, there's an army coming up on them. So just a couple verses in, in Exodus 14, it says they were terrified. They cried out to the Lord. They said, was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us out to the desert to die? What have you done by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone? Because being a slave has been so awesome that we just want to stay here. It had been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. Uh, No, they didn't really say that. But So then, okay, well, then maybe what God will do is he'll just part the Red Sea. So he parts the Red Sea, and they're like, Woo! God is awesome. This is great. A few verses later, Exodus 14, 31, they're all like, the Israelites saw the great power of the Lord display. They feared the Lord, and they put their trust in him and in Moses for about 10 minutes. So Exodus 15, they're so happy they write a song. All the women get out their tambourines. They're praising Jesus. Woo! Song ends in Exodus 15, 21. Oh, what do you know? Exodus 15, 24. Guess what's going on? Uh, I don't... There's no water. I'm really... I'm thirsty. 
I'm not drinking out of the hose. Ew. So God says, okay, I'm not just going to give you water. No, I'm going to take you to a place called Elam at the end of Exodus 15. I'm taking you to Elam. Oh, and in Elam, guess what there's going to be? Not a water fountain. No, 12 springs and 70 palm trees, folks. Yes. <sighs> oh, what do you know? A couple verses later, here we are. Exodus 16, 2. In the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. If only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. Now they're idealizing being slaves. I love this. You want to talk about crazy thinking. There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. What? Here you have brought us out into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. So God, here's their grumbling. I'm thinking his eye might be starting to twitch at this point. So what he does is he makes it rain bread. It rains bread. Oh, and they have a giant quail storm. That's what we call it in our house. It's a weather phenomenon. They have a quail storm. So meat and bread are falling out of the sky. Literally falling out of the sky. And God says, here's all you have to do now for food. This is it. This is all you have to do. It's so easy. Walk outside. Pick up the stuff off the ground. Don't be greedy. And you'll be fed. So easy. Well, we can't listen to that. No siree. We've got to go out and we've got to pick up extra, right? That's what they do. God says, only take what you need. They don't. They take extra. And then it rots. They, they open it the next morning, all the stuff they're trying to hoard. Oh, where did we hear that word earlier in the talk? Culturally, that's what we do, right? We store up. We're hoarding. We're keeping it all. We're thinking ahead. And God's saying, trust me day to day, minute to minute. So they, they hoard all this stuff. They open it the next morning. It's got maggots. And then God says, but... Because I am a God and I created the Sabbath, I am God and I created the Sabbath, I'm telling you that on the sixth day, you'll gather enough for the sixth and seventh day, and that will, that will be okay, that's fine. And don't go out on the Sabbath. You, there will be nothing on the ground. Trust me. Do they? No. They go out on the Sabbath, of course, naturally, and they look around, and oddly enough, there's nothing on the ground. So that's just, you know, bread and quails falling out of the sky. A few chapters later, after that starts happening, they're thirsty again. Maybe they need to really be better about hydrating when they have a chance. That's just my thought. It's like when the, ki- when the kids are in the car seat and they say, we're thirsty, you're like, you should have gotten a drink before you left home. Um, so then they quarrel with Moses just a few verses after the quail storm. They quarrel, quarrel with him. They say, give us water to drink. And God, or Moses turns around and says, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you put the Lord to, your, to the test? Moses says, what do I do with these people? <laughs> They're about ready to stone me. Oh, he's having a great day. Um, I will stand before you at the rock of Horeb, strike the rock, and water will come out. So Moses hits a rock, water shoots out of that, just like all the time out of my house. And then... Um, they, they continue through the book of Exodus. There's some administrative stuff. They have a battle or two going 
from chapter 17 through 18. And then in chapter 19, Moses is at Mount Sinai. The big mountain. That's where he gets the Ten Commandments, right? Thunder, lightning, smoke. He tells tells Moses, listen, I'm going to talk to you on this mountain. And the people of Israel see supernatural signs that show that God is present there. He literally covers the entire mountain in smoke. There's lightning and thunder, and there's this sound of trumpet blasting that keeps getting louder and louder, so loud that people literally get frightened in the camp. The mountain literally physically shakes. God lays down the Ten Commandments. And one of the things he says, just as an aside in the Ten Commandments, is uh, do not make any gods to be alongside me and do not make for yourself gods of silver or gods of gold. Okay, ten chapters of laws and how to build a tabernacle for God in the desert. Chapter 32. What do these people do? This is apparent. What have you done? When the people saw that, this is chapter 32, when the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron, his brother, and said, come, let us make gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him. Aaron says, take off all your gold earrings that your wives, your sons, and your daughters are wearing and bring them to me. Where did they get that gold that they're wearing? Where? God handed it to them. They take the very amazing gift that God put right in their hands and they melt it down to make another God instead of the true God. Ugh. So Moses comes down, or God God is talking to Moses. Moses hears God and God says, they have been quick to turn away from what I've commanded them and they've made themselves an idol. Moses comes down from the mountain and he says, what are you doing? He took that calf. Is this a parental thing, like washing your mouth out with soap? He ground that thing down and he put it in the water and he made him drink it. He's like, you want an idol? Okay, enjoy. Cheers. Then, as he's chewing everybody out for this, he says to his brother, what are you doing, man? I leave you in charge. It's like chaos. You're worshiping other gods. You're doing everything that we're never supposed to do. And he says to Aaron, Why, what did these people do to you that you led them in such great sin? Okay, moms, this is the moment that we all lose it with our children. Do not be angry. You know how prone these people are to evil. They said to me, make us a God who will go before us. We don't know what's happening with with Moses. So I said, whoever has any gold jewelry, take it off. They gave me the gold. I threw it in the fire and out came a calf. He literally says that. He literally says, I threw the gold in a fire and a gold calf popped out. 
And I read that, and I, and I just, I roll my eyes, and I lose it because I'm thinking about trying to lead those people. And I'm thinking, how in the world does he stand that? What is going on? And then I think, Dee Dee, that's you. God has done amazing, miraculous, beautiful, powerful things I could never imagine in my life. Over and over, he's shown himself in ways that nobody could explain except the hand of God is is upon me in some way or another. And that is me. That is me after 10 minutes on Pinterest. That is me after hanging out with a bunch of women, comparing. Oh, well, look at that. Oh, they got a new car. Boy, it would sure be nice if I had a new car. Oh, look what their husband did for them. Boy, my husband would never do that. That's me. That's you. God gives us this because it's us. It's so us. He is so countercultural. In a, in a culture that says, get all you can, save it up, as many pairs of shoes as you can get, or as much of whatever it is that you like, it's yours, you deserve it. God says, give us this day our daily bread. God says, take only what you need. The Bible says the Son of Man had no place to lay his head. Total counter, totally countercultural. Vicki used this verse in her talk earlier, but it's the verse from Philippians 4.11 through 12. I'm not saying this because I am in need, for I've learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. And you can read further down, but it talks... So when we think about that, we think about what God tells us um, in, the, in the institution of marriage when it says, I take you to be my lawfully wedded husband, to have and to hold this day forward. It's real easy to say this when things are going great. For better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, until death do us part. Do we live that? Do we live the vow we take with a grateful spirit? So gratitude, number one, gratitude is an issue of the heart. We must learn to be grateful all the time. Number two, we must know, recognize, and be in right relationship. We must know, recognize, and be in right relationship with Christ before we can expect our other relationships to be right. If we are living as discontent, ungrateful daughters of the Most High God, what makes us think we'll be grateful in our marriages? And there's a passage there from Isaiah 45 that you can read. Um, but, it, but I want to say that living with a grateful heart is a spiritual discipline. It is not just psyching yourself up and writing down five things you're happy for every day. 
Um, and we'll explain a little bit more about that in the next thing about uh, about how to be filled with that gratefulness. So one is gratitude is an issue of the heart. Two is we must we must know, recognize, and be in right relationship with Christ before we can expect our other relationships to be right. And then three, as believers, if we say that we are Christians, we need to quit looking at our lives with the cup half full or cup half empty mindset. We need to stop looking at everything with a cup half full or half empty mindsets. And this comes into play big time in our marriages. Because Christ is the one that meets our needs, ladies. Not our husbands. We've got to get out of the mindset that we think that God put our husbands in our world to right all our wrongs and fill our tanks and do all those things. If we don't know Jesus and if we aren't walking with Jesus, we're going to be looking for it in all the wrong places and we're going to put pressure on our husbands and our kids to meet needs that only God can meet. God's word tells us that, oh, sorry. Um, And then it says, in Christ, our cup overflows. He gives to us abundantly. There's a verse that I put in there, um, Luke 6.38. It says, given, it will be given to you a good measure, pressed down, shaking together, running over, will be poured into your lap. Ephesians 3, 20 and 21 says, Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus through all generations. Immeasurably more than all we ask and imagine. Do you believe that? you believe that's what Jesus can do in your homes, in your lives, in your relationships? It has to start with you. We can't sit here and go, boy, I sure wish my husband could hear this because he is a mess. (laughs) Could you send that to him somehow anonymously? That's all. Um, So we have to be willing to really just look at what God wants to do in us, how he wants us to be transformed by his word. We overflow because of what Christ does in us. Not because of our circumstances, not because of ourselves, not because of what our children are or are not, not because of what our husbands do and don't do. And so the last question for you, taking an attitude of gratefulness, gratitude in your homes, in your marriages, what are you filling yourself with? You can't pour out of an empty cup. So what do you fill yourself with? And it's crazy, you know, we talk about how busy we are and all the things that are going on in our worlds. And we still have a lot of time to do a lot of meaningless stuff. Um, So I would really encourage you this month, just make it a priority to look at how you fill your time. And all those times that you say, oh, gosh, I really don't have time to pray. I don't have time to sit down with God's word. Get off Facebook. Get in God's word. I promise you this is so much more beautiful and rewarding and lasting than that other stuff. And it will fill you 
with what you need to be filled with. So I just want to encourage you um, to make the most of the time that God has given you in your marriages and in your families. Let God's word and his truth transform the way you think about things. Because when, when that's your focus, it will revolutionize your thought life. And you will be filled with gratitude. Let me pray for you. Lord, we love you. We thank you so much for this day, for the way that you love us. Oh, those Israelites, that's us. So, Father, forgive us for those moments. Help us to keep coming back to you. Keep repenting, keep returning, and keep, keep filling ourselves with you and your word. Lord, when we think about that, that bread raining down from heaven, we think that you have, we know that you've done that in the form of your word. You have rained yourself down in the form of this written word um, because in it, it reveals your heart for us and everything that we need to know about you is contained in this book. Fill us more, fill us with more of you, your hope, your heart, your truth, your word, your gratitude. In your name we pray. Amen.